banging on the fucking sliders. We're we're rolling. Uh, John Lundy, podcast podcast episode seventy three. This talks Caravan, director of data science. See that red Rippin bar? A this is Queasy Rider. Yeah, means that red bar means that Caravan just peaked every yeah. mic in this room. <laughs> means that means which I'm is, popular, dude. Means I'm a popular host. What he does on every Kyle, show. take it away. Kyle, not Lindley Wasserberger, uh, not Pulse product manager. Currently, just Burger s- product manager. Yeah, I was trying to keep oh, cool. Something cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we replaced uh, replaced Kyle Lindley with Kyle Wasserberger. Uh, Lindley's out of town. I'm I'm Anthony Brady, director of sports science, driveline baseball, primary host of the R and D research and drinks podcast, and we have another guest too. And I am David Besky, little coordinator. Closer. Oh. Yeah, there we go. You're getting it. Uh, Driveline baseball. Where, where should I pick up? Just from the beginning. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let the I, people know. On the microphone. Oh, yeah. That's money right um, there. David Besky, uh, coordinator of player development analytics. Oh. Um, former data scientist, still working under this guy, um, doing data science type stuff, um, but with a little bit more focus on kind of player development stuff recently. Yeah. Okay. So now, now we got to put out the R and D reorg post before Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, go. Yeah. So uh, Lindley's um, Lindley's out of town. He's remote. It was actually his birthday on Wednesday. Uh, Happy Wednesday. birthday! Wednesday, Monday. I meant Monday. Yeah. I don't know why I said Wednesday. Today's Wednesday. Yeah. Birthday. Birthday was on Monday. Um, Lindley's Lindley's working remotely, so we don't have him. But we did a little Kyle upgrade. Get Wasserberger on the pod. Um, yeah. This is going to be a bit of a switch up from the other episodes. Yeah, I mean, we, we've been doing like a lot of interviews, you know, had some people from the skill side come in. Uh, now we're now we're back on our nerd. Shit, we, we were so. just going for cloud, though. We had Oates, yeah. Jake's. Those guys don't actually know anything. You yeah, know what exactly. I'm we were just like they have a yeah. lot of followers. Like now we're actually yeah. talking underground yeah. R&D guys. Yeah. If I was about to redo that 64 man tournament. Mm-hmm. Weeds. Yeah. Weeds yeah. are what yeah. we're going to be. You guys would probably too. be looking at second round exits. Probably. Yeah. I'll be honest. <laughs> second round exit at best. I think I had a second round exit yeah. Yeah. last time. Uh, oh, really? Who'd you beat first round? I don't know. What, what was the? Uh, could, been, yeah. What if, was the cap? Like, been, <laughs> well, no, no, no. Was the cap twenty five hundred or five k? Five k. Five k. Five k. Yeah. I still yeah, got plenty of room. One k. Got, got a better shot there. <laughs> that's on, that sounds like a pretty good point. I, I'm, I'm down to, if I'm going to redo that, I, I just got to go even more restrictive. But didn't you have no uh, driveline employees? No, I, I had a couple. I had oh, a couple. You do it with March Madness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Opportunity to get it out. Yeah. Get it out soon. So, yeah, this episode's going to be um, probably a little, little more uh, in-depth uh, on some, like, analytical topics. Who knows, though? Maybe we'll just go off the rails and it'll be, like, more more degen than the the other reps. Talk, talking about Besky's favorite drink, yeah. which is oh. probably which I'm you know the smoking skull. Oh, yeah, I yeah. do I do love the smoking skull. Also love uh, the uh, donut shop blend. Yeah, I uh, I'll, I'll take the I'll Besky's take the blend allergic, here. So. I uh, I got beers for the pod before coming into work today. Uh, got the Deschutes IPA variety pack. I got the little squeezy, the juicy pail. I think it's all pretty fire, but I didn't get anything. Besky approved. Um, Got the celiacs. But yeah, but but, but yeah, for real, like on, on you know on the pod for the first time, what do you think of the smoking skull? What do you think of smoking skull drink? Did you feel it at all? Uh, what was it? I don't know. <laughs> just, it was just like it was like six. It was like six things. I don't really know. Is the part. yeah? Like, I mean, I mean, it's, it's still it's only one cocktail. Um, I mean, if it was smoking, I think that's I think wait that, when that, was that hit us harder. When was like the first the first beer or drink you had? 
Um, it was. When was it? Like September, October? Was it, was, it was like October. Because like, like, it was before reviews. Yeah. Because was that yeah. at Gators? Yeah. That was, was, was when we were all there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fire. H- have I been there for for uh, every time you drank? Um, I think one time you said, or you you hit like one one. Oh yeah, you, you hit like uh, you went out with like BB Ops maybe. Um, I had a couple sips with some of the BB Ops guys. And then I actually had half of a cider on Thanksgiving, which you weren't there for. Yeah. But, but, but when, when besky has been getting hammered, though, I've been there. With <laughs> but apart from that, that I, th- that I think it's been. what three three <laughs> alcoholic beverages you've been there for. Three out of yeah. the three point six two. Dude, that is so crazy. Because uh, when when I came back uh, full time after 2018, I was I was at this stage of still counting like numbers of beers and like drinks that i'd had too because because mine was like right after grad school ended when i had my first one so we were doing like assessment trips and i was doing the same thing where it was like this is only like the fourth beer you know i've ever had so like my my drinking knowledge was was pretty low but then then me and brady uh started going out together and uh he quickly (laughs) lost track (laughs) yeah so that that's not untrue for for sure um okay a little bit about yourselves who wants to go first I think the doctor. Well, does. yeah. Okay, you guys have both been on at some point, or Was has mm-hmm. Besky first appearance. First appearance. First appearance. First okay, yeah. And I wasn't on when you were on, so. So you don't know anything about him. I mean, really, really, this is your first time on the pod, you oh. know? Because and Lindley's first time missing it. So the you, primary you host hang, wasn't there. Hanging that over our he heads. Does. He does. Have you ever seen Kyle Lindley and I in the same podcast room? That's Ooh. true. That is very true. Yeah. Maybe the same person. Okay, tell us about who Kyle Wasserberger is. Um, he is a recent hire. Uh, came on full time in October. Worked uh, worked remotely for a few months uh, while I finished up uh, my PhD at Auburn uh, University down in Alabama. Uh, moved out here at the end of January, beginning of February. Been on site ever since, and just mainly been doing sports science stuff, doing biomech, behind the scenes stuff. Yep. Non non driveline uh, 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 things though anything big hockey guy big hockey guy that's huge lives five blocks away from us yeah five blocks away from Ca- us caravan now. found out where I lived somehow not quite sure how that happened <laughs> that's dangerous uh, and already almost broken in <laughs> that'll, that'll happen broken um, into the yard that'll happen uh, yeah big hockey guy um, D three baseball player D three uh, Tommy John survivor yeah um, this is a good room this is a good. Had, had TJ between my senior year of high school and freshman year of college, so um, PO um, all the way in college. Not by choice, of course. No, <laughs> definitely not. Um, played first base in high school. And Oh, yeah, left-handed. That makes sense. I actually bat right-handed. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm one nice. of those weirdos. That's fire. You and Jerry both. What's, what's up with driveline sports science and being lefty but batting righty? Jerry hits uh, right handed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. But he can cancel it out because he can throw with both hands. That's fair. So he's a, he's a switch thrower. Well, but he, what, he, what he, throw, he throws, right he throws much harder. Or not much harder. He throws harder for sure at lefty. Like yeah, yeah. A few, like what, like five, like five miles? Yeah. Five, yeah, six, yeah. something like that. Yeah. 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 He, I mean, he's, he's good lefty and he's, he's serviceable righty. But, probably how I'd put it. St. Olaf's finest. Give us a quick intro. Finest. I got slightly less school under my belt than Was three, as opposed to what ten years of college. Too many. 
Too so, many. Um, but yeah, went to St. Olaf College, played D3 ball there. Um, Where's St. Olaf's at? at I don't know. Northfield, Minnesota. 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 Yeah, sure, you betcha. D3, what was the D3 you went to? Oh, uh, at the time it was Calvin College, now it's Calvin University, which Ooh. makes it sound cooler, right? Nice. Um, which is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Michigan, Minnesota. Very. Honestly, there have been multiple times when I've like just crossed those up. Michigan, Minnesota? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Minnesota's got all the little lakes. Michigan's got the. I've never ones. been to Minnesota. I don't feel bad about that because uh, people miss, like, get Idaho and Iowa. Like mixed up all the time. Or they're basically some gnarly. A bad one. You're yeah. like, you're like, I don't give, a, I don't give, I don't care because I don't care about people in those states. <laughs> <laughs> that like, dude, that's that's seventy percent of our podcast yeah, that, listeners. That they're too, all that mid- Midwest. That too. That too. Um, anyways, yeah, uh, caught my first years in college. Pitched my last one because I couldn't hit well enough. So PO, not by uh, kind of by choice, but not really by choice. Yeah. Um, but then started at drive line September 2019. Been there since. Um, started out in CR. Um, and then kind of had opportunity to work on a couple uh, analytics projects, starting with well, this is actually a great story. Yeah, Saver twenty twenty yeah. yeah presentation. Yeah. yeah, I was like trying to think. I was like almost. It, it, it seems so long ago. It seems both so long ago and like really recent. It was. Too. It was right about the the start of the podcast, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But. Anyway, so yeah, well, worked on some stuff there. Um, a variety of kind of bebops type stuff. Uh, calculated war for uh, like college baseball worked on building out some heat maps then kind of like uh, a little more than a year ago transitioned a little to be a little bit more biomech um, heavy in terms of data analysis of that uh, just naturally gravitating towards that um, just being like especially interested in that from having been a shitty baseball player yeah it's also Wait, just like I can a cool say shitty shit. on the podcast oh yeah you can say whatever okay. you want on this one at least we, we well mm. There's some guardrails there. Most of those guardrails are for him, so you can say whatever you want. I'm not aware of any guardrails. I, I, I can say whatever I will. Say. Yeah, the, the the rules don't don't extend the same to Caravan. Yeah, I mean, uh, no no surprise wanting to get in the biomic stuff. It's just, I mean, it's like it's just cool to work with. It's just fun, right? Yeah, I mean, we talk we talk a bunch about um, on this podcast and in general, we talk about like our motion capture data, and, and I think like. One of the things, maybe for listeners that aren't uh, super into weeds or, or haven't actually directly put of our data sets, I, I think it's easy to get confused between like markered, markerless, pitching biomechanics, like what ground ground reaction forces are, like all all, all, all these things. Um, so, so I guess I'm kind of curious just for like an uh, for you guys to give your thoughts and maybe intro the the, the listeners. But uh, watch you go first, and then Besky. Like, what, what, how would you describe um, if you could give us succinct? Uh, and by succinct, I mean you know under 120 seconds. I'll start you on a timer. Uh, like, how would you describe our our main our main data sources on on the biomix side? Yeah, so we get uh, we get kinematics from the markers, right? And so you see uh, athletes get all those shiny dots placed all over them, um, and our cameras track those dots in three dimensional space. And so we get the kinematics from that. That's how they're moving. You know how fast how far they move. Uh, then with the force plates in the ground, we get the kinetic data, which is the force that the athletes are literally putting in the ground. Um, and then there's a whole other branch of biomechanics, which is EMG, which we don't have, but, or do we? But we have done before. Okay. We, we, don't, we don't use uh, like currently right now, but yeah, we, we, uh, that was one of the first, uh, first papers. Some of famous, dude. 
So yeah. I'm gonna be famous. Those pictures of me yeah. with the EMG centered <laughs> yeah. on me. Yeah. yeah. So EMG stands for electromyography for those who aren't familiar. And yes. kind of if you take a biomechanics course in college, they kind of give it to you under those kind of three umbrellas: kinematics, kinetics, and EMG. And yeah. So we do a lot of the first two here, both in the markered lab and the markerless lab. Then we get the kinetics with the with the force plates. Yeah. And what do you think from a data analysis, data science point of view? Like, what do you, what do you what are you personally most excited to to work with, uh, and and or have worked with? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the biggest thing on kind of the the biomechanics side relative to um, sort of like other data analysis um, perspectives is just that with the time series data, so we have um, each joint um, throughout the course of time of the throw. Um, or like the joint angle, as well as like the positions in space from each. Um, so there's just a, a variety of questions and sort of like in typical analyses, they're reduced to uh, kind of like single points in space or single points, point of interest metrics, um, whether that be at a particular time at foot plant um, or the max value. Uh, but then there's other questions that kind of are completely different from that in terms of how they get into those positions, how they kind of coordinate that um, and so there's this whole like full time series data to kind of be able to try and extract further insights from um, that I think is really interesting. And then, I mean, it's just the numbers for how people move. So it's sort of allows you to scale the, it's basically watching video on steroids Yeah, yeah. is yeah. what it is. And so being able to apply the data science to it that and just sift through massive amounts of it. It just feels super powerful. Yeah, that, that's, that's actually pretty close to um, the last week. Uh, I got to go down to, to UPS and, and do the do a little guest lecture to the biomechanics class there. It was pretty cool. And Oh, yeah, talk, talk about it a little bit. That, you, just, you just told me it went well. Yeah, yeah, it, it was pretty sweet. I mean, um, shout out D3 baseball players. Uh, went, to, went to UPS. Uh, Played baseball there for for one year. Puget Sound, to be clear. University of Puget Sound, yeah. Uh, that, not that's a good. Not, not the delivery service. Go Brown. D three, baby, real D three. Yeah. Um, so I actually got to go down there because we have a we have a little internship pipeline set up with with Puget Sound to get some students out here and get experience in our lab. Um, so I went down, got to teach like a forty five minute hour long lecture on applied biomechanics and how how we do it, and it was it was really cool to give that perspective uh to the to the students there and one of the things that i talked about kind of like my progression of slides was like first i showed the full speed video um from behind that jared got on his iphone of when i was throwing in the lab and it's just like a slide progression of like going from qualitative to quantitative so it's like your coaches players whatever when they just are eyeballing mechanics they're watching it in real time they get, you know, the, the view from back there. And then the next one I showed is the multi-time-synced uh, edutronic footage. So it's like, okay, now we have four perspectives here. They're all synchronized, a lot more frames where we can, like, get into stuff. Um, but we still don't really know uh, what's going on at a quantitative level. So then going from, like, slow-mo video into recreating a, a 3D model, like what you were talking about with the, the markers, um, we now have still that qualitative visual of like me moving in space uh, at high speed that we can move around and look at it from angles, but that's still not quali quantitative. Um, in order to actually like calculate the kinematics, get all that, now we've got joint angles, 
joint angular velocities, segmental rotations, all of that, where where we can like actually put a number to how I'm moving. Uh, and then we can do like analyses, compare, you know, me versus a former version of me, a later version, all of that stuff. It was kind of just, and the, the, the main thing that I was saying or walking through was I, I asked everyone in the room, I was like, you know, how many people are on sports teams here? How many uh, people have had their, their coach make some sort of like mechanical or movement recommendation? Um, you know, do, yes, they're skilled and trained in like whatever movement or skill you're doing and they probably have a good idea, but do they really know how you're moving? Especially in pitching. This is so fast, it's so ballistic. So me just naturally, like when I was playing, I was just like challenged uh, authority more or less in that sense and was like, why do you think that's the case? You know, like why, like you're saying that I'm doing this thing and that I need to change it to get better, you know? Like I, I understand that, but do you really know? And yeah. so biomechanical data in my mind, in terms of like how we approach it and leverage it is just like, the clearest, most accurate picture of how someone is actually moving. Like if there's there's multiple things that we can do on top of it, like really, really uh, robust and, and, and rigorous analyses and like awesome deep dives and investigations. But at the heart of it, if it just, you know, serves at the surface level to like accurately quantify movement, that's still so powerful. Like I think that alone is just like, one of the most powerful aspects of, of being able to look at like movement and biomechanical data. One thing to actually, um, haven't really talked to you, to you guys about before, um, but I think it's really interesting, especially from the point of view of like kind of an outsider uh, perspective, me, like I don't have a traditional biomechanics background. I've worked with a lot of biomechanics data uh, and I know like a bit about the limitations and constraints and everything, but do you guys have any thoughts or concerns about as people, as like baseball teams and colleges start getting their own biomechanics lab, um, not they're not being any like one universal model to allow mapping <laughs> over of uh, oh oh starting off with a softball. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I was gonna I was gonna say like a pretty a pretty easy example is uh, Wass's Auburn model, um, which you know you, you did for your dissertation and then obviously not my model. Wait. <laughs> Trademark. Uh, Wasserberger, <laughs> Wasserberger invented the model that all yeah. Auburn publications are currently using. Uh, Wasserberger at all. But yeah, I, I guess I'll just leave it open end on that. Uh, yeah, what are you guys' thoughts on that? And any way to like eventually centralize and have it all tied down to like some core model? And I mean, I would just expand upon that further with like, what are the modeling decisions that go into that? Because I don't think that's immediately clear. It's like, yeah. sure, we have the dots, mm -hmm. but like, yeah. how would people get there different? Yeah, 47 markers, that, for same 470, 4,700. Yeah. yeah, like, how, how do you end up with different results based on modeling choices? Yeah, I mean, I've got a, like, Was and I have had talks uh, about this, just like, I mean, I remember, I remember during the summer, podcast, baby. Dur during the summer, just like sitting and just like complaining about how, how frustrating um that situation is i think that's one of the things that in conversations with you uh and others that i definitely wanted to like try to explain um because there's with biomechanical data there's a lot of nuances and limitations and it at face value it's easy to just well it's hard to know those at all like even even being a a trained biomechanist in terms of like getting the education it's like still really complex stuff 
but it's important to know those nuances when you're trying to interpret the data because it's really easy to just like look at the numbers at face value and be like this is fact this mm -hmm. is what it is um so th th there are a lot of uh intricacies i'm actually very down to uh hear, hear, hear your thoughts on this yeah doctor yeah well, I mean, so you, you asked about what are the modeling decisions that go into like between different labs and probably the two that come to mind are how are we defining the joint centers, particularly because we're throwing and we're talking about the shoulder. How you define the shoulder joint center is just a snake's nest right off the bat. Yep. And then, but on top of that, it's how you, how and when you decide to filter your marker data because mm -hmm. um, you can filter at the very first level when you're just looking at the posi position over time you can then do your signal uh, computations to get joint torques velocities accelerations whatever and then filter again or you can't or you don't yeah and then even on top of so that would be the when so like do you just filter once do you filter twice whatever but then what do you filter at because uh, you, if you read, you know, ten different baseball biomechanics papers, here's an ASMI one, here's a Wake Forest one, here's a driveline one, whatever. Yep. You could come up with as many different filtering cutoff frequencies for your filter than there are papers. Yeah. And um, even if we uh, if we take the same raw position data and lab A filters it at thirteen point four, right? 13.4 or 15.6 and then we filter it at 20 <laughs> and especially when you're extracting local peaks like the peak values are going to be extremely sensitive yeah. to that cutoff frequency yeah. so you see lab a reports peak elbow extension velo of 2500 degrees per second and, and we report it as 2900 degrees per second mm -hmm. there may in fact not be any actual difference yeah. in the under could be the same in the underlying movement it could be yeah. it, it could be the exact same, same thing but just we had a higher cutoff frequency they had a lower yeah. one you know they filtered it twice we filtered it it only at the beginning or vice versa yeah. so those are the two biggest modeling decisions that uh come to mind when you're talking about introducing between lab or between setup differences mm -hmm. Also, I mean, the, I would I would add in the third of um, the decisions around pose estimation for for six off or um, you know limiting well, limiting the amount of degrees of fingers. Six off is a well, actually, Wash should describe six off because a lot of the conversations that we had this summer were around how um, at Auburn you guys use a, a six off. Uh, model. model of course yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah was's model at, at auburn the, the six off pose estimation whereas our biomechanical data has always been a two uh, a two chain um ik linkages inverse kinematics uh model mm -hmm. so yeah you want to try to try to explain what uh, uh okay. what a six off model um, is um yeah so basically Six degrees of freedom. DOF. DOF. Yeah, that, six that, DOF. That, that got me the other day. You guys were saying six DOF. I Googled like yeah. six DOF. Oh. X I S I X. It sounds like a it sounds like a rapper. And I'm just like, who is who is who is uh sounds like a cross with my Daphne or something else. Yeah. It either sounds like a drug or some like underground hip hop artist. Six DOF on the mic. Six DOF on the mic right here, dude. So for you bb ops people these are i mean it's kind of like statistical degrees of freedom i mm -hmm. guess um but 
the way we use it in biomechanics means if I have six degrees of freedom, that means I'm free to translate and rotate in all three planes of motion, right? Yeah. So if you think about my shoulder, when I move my shoulder, I can rotate it any which way and I can, you know, if I move my shoulder girdle as a whole, I can kind of translate it in, in any which way. Versus if I move my elbow, I can't take my elbow and like move it as freely as my shoulder, right? Because the bony geometry of my forearm and upper arm kind dude, of... You need to go for sure for this, dude. You see that elbow? <laughs> kind of rest no. <laughs> restrict my elbow to only moving in this, uh, you know, single plane of motion, right? And so we would say my shoulder has more degrees of freedom than my elbow. Mm -hmm. And when we say a uh, full sixed off model, it, that means that our software is treating each body segment in our entire model as completely free to move relative to the other segments, right? And so um, versus a non-sixed off where uh, we constrain in the software, we say, hey, elbow, you can't actually like Dislocate. translate way this way, yep. right? Which sounds great in practice, but then when you get into certain pose estimation problems, we can yeah. get stuck with uh, stuck in minima where the pose estimation algorithm actually says, well, actually you can do that, yeah, yeah. right? And, and so it it's kind of like, what, what lumps are you willing to take mm -hmm. with the respective approach? Yeah, and so getting back to kind of the thing you were talking about, like biomechanics getting more popular, there's gonna be more labs, all this stuff. There really isn't a, Okay, I'm actually not going to say that. There is a body out there that establishes like ASMR. standards, uh, ISBS, uh, with ISBS standards, at least as far ISB as I know, ASB, ISBS, right? Like, ISB standards. Yeah, yeah, the ISB standards. Like, as I know it, that's like the most commonly used. Like, if you're trying to figure out, yeah, yeah, you can go there. Yeah. The, the, there are like massive documents online and resources for like, how to model and define joint centers and then like their recommendations on things and that's fine but one of the after after going through like l really diving into understanding modeling pose estimation and and all of that stuff i more or less came to a conclusion actually with a lot of help from you and like conversations with you about this kind of stuff that like domain experience matters more than what is you know deemed academically correct by this like yeah. governing body and isb like this is by no means i'm saying that, this is basically the cdc of yeah, biomechanics yeah like by no means am i saying that you should like go against what what isb recommends but one of the best additions to our lab now is the edutronic data that we're getting the high speed mm -hmm. qualitative video because you can really see how the segments are moving in the video and cross-reference that to like the biomechanical models. So you can know if, if one model where you have like the shoulder defined in a certain area or certain markers defining a certain segment, you can just look at that video and be like, okay, that's, that's not actually happening. Which to be honest with everyone is like what we have found in some of our biomechanical data. Like that's why we're actually trying to move to uh, a newer model that we feel more confident accurately is like representing the movement uh, of the humerus, the movement of the torso the whole time. I think one of the most exciting things is um, historically we have used an inverse uh, kinematics. kinematics linkage chain 
for like the upper body, specifically the shoulder is constrained to the torso in some fashion that affects the way that like torso movements are, are measured in the lab. Because like, if you put constraints on how the shoulder, how the elbow can move and how these segments can move, um, you're, you're just because of the nature of the pitching motion, getting into like extreme ranges of motion and moving really fast. Uh, these models are going to solve and say like, okay, the arm can't be there unless the torso is like slightly shifted. So you see the, the peak signals and movements maybe get dampened and then they're like exaggerated elsewhere. But what we're doing with our model now is like the torso and pelvis specifically, we're just treating them as like six degrees of freedom, individual segments. They can like translate and rotate in space. Um, you know, they're not, they're not linked to any other segments. So we feel better about like getting a little more accurate there. And during this process of, of doing this, I mean, I was having combos with WASS like borderline daily, like rolling in and just like flipping through biomechanics books and being like, what did you guys do? What do we do? I don't even know, like I'm just losing my mind because each time I make a decision, there's a trade-off elsewhere. And yeah. I think finally just got like worn down to a point where it was like, we just gotta make a decision that we feel good about because each time I would try to like look up research or see something or go into a paper and see how they define the model. Mm -hmm. And then I would try that. And like there was the, there's almost like an element of like imposter syndrome that I was going through where I was like, I'm trying, I'm like Jimmy rigging these things that not a lot of other people are doing, but this works. And then when I go to the literature, they're saying that you need to do it like that. And then when we do that, it doesn't look good. Like yeah, it doesn't look yeah. right. And that, that's because the literature is based on 98% of people walking. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's actually like the biggest problem is that a oh, lot of these. Oh, based off Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the like recommendations and stuff are, are based on the most popular field in biomechanics, which is just like gate. You know, other normal even, but like even jogging processes, or even yeah. jogging or, or running, like you're still extremely uniplanar mm -hmm. and not even. I mean, I guess in sprinting, you kind of get close to some end ranges in, in the hips and knees, yeah. maybe, but, but like still, yeah. nothing, nothing compared to pitching, yeah, yeah, nothing it's like the, the uh, rotation range mm -hmm. of motion, uh, particularly in the torso and the shoulder, like, yeah. Exactly. So it just got to a point where it was like, I don't know if this is right. I, I like really don't, but like, I don't, I also don't know if there's anyone else in this field that has like the amount of data. There might be a handful on, right? the, on the population too. Yeah. There, the population. There's like maybe a handful of people that have the, the amount of data and stuff that we have and have been able to like work with over over a period of time the amount of like biomechanical data and stuff that we've worked with so like i do feel some element of like we can just make a call here and run with it you know and, and if if at some point someone sees it and and, and they're like mm, that doesn't look right or it doesn't follow these standards it's like we've got our our like our athlete results as kind of our forever shield against that at least in my, you know that's how i've been looking at it to kind of like get over my own uh I internal imposter syndrome about uh, these uh, kind of decisions i was gonna say as, as a quick note uh, a funny tangent on on you and leafing through books and imposter syndrome i remember a couple weeks ago when your girlfriend was over and she was like trying to roast you on uh just having a big calculus textbook she's like who who looked like who looks through his textbooks and you're like 
me on a daily basis i'm double checking what i'm doing (laughs) (laughs) it was so funny it was pretty bad Uh, yeah i have all my like college textbooks and stuff but i still do that all the time yeah yeah i still do that all the time with like uh the the (laughs) research methods in biomechanics i mean i've i've aggressively leafed through that probably i don't want to say it's done more harm than good like uh, a lot of the foundational knowledge i have is around that but there have definitely been way too many times where i've just looked through that book and been like well this is how they did it this is how we have to do it you know uh and so getting away from that is has kind of been nice it's a bit scary but i think it's i'm pretty excited about where we're going with it for sure what do you think from working with uh i mean you know a fuck ton of data which is soon to be about a fuck ton squared tons of data once we get through the v5 and v6 pipelines yeah um or v6 uh what are some what are some takeaways like if someone was going to like sit down if, if someone you know goes through sets up a R&D lab or, or biomech lab gets a bunch of data they're sitting down they're ready to analyze it like what, what would you recommend to people first like you know dive in deep what are some things to consider what are some some things to look at right away uh, what, any, any words of advice to for people look out there look we're gonna biomech data yeah um I mean I think part of it is um sort of understanding what's going on with the data, having some idea of movement is yeah. just super helpful. Um, especially uh, if you're if you're looking at like metrics which are like collinear. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the starting point is, yeah, figuring out some sort of point of interest metrics, which is going to be dependent upon um, some review of like existing literature, yeah. like yeah. In, in pitching, usually whatever like peak knee height, foot plant, ball release. Standardized events. Yep, standardized events. Um, Because otherwise, if you just start with the full signals, um, like, I mean, I I think that's something that we've done uh, really well is kind of simplifying the data to be able to apply it, Mm -hmm. to apply it to an extent that that no one else really has to to my knowledge. Yeah. Um, And so, like, there's more... um, more uh potential there to kind of dive deep and like build out increasingly complex better models um but like the the biggest bang for the buck is the the simple stuff what kind of stands out even in in simple analyses so kind of start simple i i think is a big thing kind of uh definitely explore the data to understand kind of um uh collinearity between different things because like you might think you're measuring one thing, but it actually just like, yeah. um, what's a good example? Oh, like COG velocity. Yeah. It's like, okay, how fast is he moving down the mountain? Highly correlated yeah. with stride length. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. Right. But right. just like, if, if you don't kind of check for those relationships, it, it's kind of, uh, or checking for those relationships, I feel like it's super helpful for like contextualizing what each metric means. So um, just like, Anytime it's like trying to come up with a new metric, I always think of like, all right, like what could be confounding this? Like, yeah. are, are there certain segments of the population that just are biased and always have this metric be larger? Are yeah. heavier athletes always more efficient? Or, Why'd you or, look at me? <laughs> <laughs> what was that? No comment. <laughs> Unavailable for comment. Why'd you Why'd you say heavy athletes and you looked over here? Where'd you put Fat your tails. Where'd you put your zod? Hey, two twenty six today. All right, I'll have hey. you know. No, wait, wait. But he's also hiding a mod pizza right, be, right behind. <laughs> two twenty six today. I think it's back there now. Yeah, I got pizza to finish after this. Um, 
Yeah, so stuff like that. Um, Another one I think is just like super interesting on those lines is like MER, like how how much time they have or Mm. like the relationship of like time, the arm going into MER, torque. Yeah. uh, Just like all kind of being confounded by the range of motion they reach in that because if they they have an extra, uh, say, 20 degrees for like an extreme comparison to go, like they're going to spend more time. They're potentially, yeah. whatever, going to be able to generate more for like our efficiency metrics, um, which would be just like how much velocity they're able to generate relative to the torque on their elbow, um, controlling for like body weight as well. Um, it's just like MER crops up there as like a confounding variable, and it's like this interesting. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's uh, interesting observation, good to know, um, but also like. You want to make sure if that's not what you're trying to capture. You want to make sure that you're kind of understanding yeah. how how different things are interplaying and, mm-hmm. and what could be confounding there. That's a good point. I was gonna say, um, yeah, kind of what, kind of what Besky's saying, but I would say like making sure you know what you're looking for. Like if you're trying to develop players, like we are, like what metrics? Not only what metrics like correlate or explain the most variation in VL or metric we care about, but like which ones are ones you can actually train. Yeah. Like okay, like max shoulder internal rotation like how fast your shoulder moves okay great but like what are what yeah. are the actual ones we think we can, we can change through through drills and want to attack versus just like throwing everything in blender and seeing the what has a highest correlation yeah i had a weird um a, a pretty weird thought the other day um about like all the all the biomechanics research has kind of been done up to this point um and how that's going to influence a lot of these new labs Mm -hmm. and people who are starting to get into like pitching hitting baseball biomechanics and whatnot you know and walking through the thought experiment of like if for some reason all the literature on like mathematics and physics just was gone right eventually the same principles would would like come to light through science right like we would eventually get to the same mathematical like truths and and proofs right so like if you did the same thought experiment applied to baseball biomechanics specifically i wonder if with the amount of now labs and stuff that are popping up people who are getting interested in it high level athletes throwing in these would we come to the same sort of Mm -hmm. of principles because it drove a lot of previous research drove where we looked, you know, the idea of the kinematic sequence, the idea of, mm-hmm. of, of just sequencing in general of like, um, you know, uh, segments moving rotationally uh, in certain planes, you know, why certain metrics are more important, even just the way that events and stuff are defined, right? That is, it goes back to seminal research done, you know, well before, I mean, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s and whatnot. So if all of that didn't exist and there was just like a lab that did biomechanics research, would we come to the same kind of conclusions? I think that's 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 the thing I'm most excited about, about V6 and now having a, a really robust data set um, that, that we can play with across, across levels. And we got longitudinal data. Like uh, I'm almost down to, to try to break a lot of those norms, you know, that that we think are fact or, or, you know, models of, of pitching mechanics specifically. Um, yeah. One thing you mentioned, I think it would be cool to kind of talk to, uh, talk about and then have some listeners maybe, you know, get feedback on or, or just like learn from, uh, this conversation. Uh, you mentioned labeling events. So, so in the pitching motion that, that kind of centers mostly around, I mean, important ones are foot plant, 
yeah. uh, ball release, MER, uh, anything else you, you guys think like is, is worth like talking about or bringing up from a, from an applied sense? And, and and also, do you guys we should talk about how like how that impacts how you actually compare numbers, right? Like, what, what does it mean to identify events? How do you compare yeah. when normalizing between those events? Yeah, I mean, I think the the traditional like phases and event definitions are that it's like you've got your I don't even know what the first one's like traditionally called. Oh, stride phase, you know, like leg lift to foot plant. And then you've got Usually uh, it's early, arm, early arm cocking. Cocking. Yeah, yeah, early cocking or something is like foot plant to lay back. Uh, or foot plant to like 90 or flat yeah, or something. And then it's late, yeah. late cocking. Late cocking is into, into MER and then... Late cocking is what I was doing last night, dude. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> the driveline phase. Yeah, driveline drive phase from, from MER into ball release and then deceleration from ball release to, to MIR. That, um, that's the one I'll take issue with. Yeah. I mean, they, they make sense. When you look at like what they were doing and, and the reasons behind it, it's like, yeah, we need, you just look at how gate research came about, which is like, we need events. We need like, I mean, first rocker, second rocker, third, you know, toe on, mm -hmm. heel off, all those. You need standardized events that like everyone in the population does in the movement, you know, to to look at it. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's definitely room to foot plant. I think is a is a solid one. Yeah, you know? because foot it's, plant, it's so, foot contact, foot strike, yeah. weight bearing. There, there's so many ways to, I guess, just look at that that alone. Because right. there could be several frames, depending what your FPS is. Yeah. There's yeah. tons of different striking patterns. Some yeah. people land on their toe, yeah. Yeah. midfoot, heel, all that. Yeah. I think there's a lot, of, lot on the, um, the definition side. I think there's only, only so many, like you were saying, like if we lost all knowledge about baseball biomechanics, I'm, I'm fairly confident the main event signals would still come through. Because like, yeah. there's only... Like, you asked me to break down the phases of a squat, for example. Like, there's the bottom of the squat, there's the top. Like, the, yeah. you, like you got the eccentric phase and the concentric yeah, like phase. You, you can only do so much before you're just salading yourself. Yeah. And so I think that would still kind of ring through. For sure. Um, the one that I've seen or that I noticed, uh, especially when we're looking at energy flow, is that MIR usually mm. isn't long enough. Mm. in terms of a decel phase because um and we we got a paper out uh last year about how um if you're looking at like shoulder ir torque for example yeah that gets really low by m by mir and so if you if you're just looking at shoulder rotation torque for mm -hmm. example you see oh it's pretty minimal following ball release there must not be that uh, much stress on the shoulder at that point but if you ask any player or coach or at or yeah. pt uh you'll hear that you know d cell injuries are crazy and like right. it's super tough on like your posterior shoulder capsule and whatever and so like we're missing something there and actually mm -hmm. when you just don't look at when you look at more than just shoulder rotation torque and you look at the entire joint moment or the entire joint force or both at the same time in energy flow you actually see following mir there's like this big not as big as the peaks during cocking but um there's this big swell in joint loads mm. following mir as the athlete slows down and brings their arm across and if we just look at shoulder rotation and elbow valgus we miss that yeah 
So yeah, see that 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 is the kind of stuff that if if there was a world where you know you didn't have the the previous stuff, what kind of where you know what what fresh ideas or takes could we kind of like you know roll down to to get better answers and stuff? I ju- I just get worried that a lot of the a lot of the previous research is kind of like pointed us in in certain directions um and so it's hard to look at those and just be like you know you're you're trying yeah you're trying to form fit the investigations into what's already known you know in the area instead of instead of kind of going rogue which which i think is like i mean a lot of those studies are based off probably that population with average below what like 80 oh so that would, not I, even i mean that'd yeah. be impressive yeah yeah that'd so, be impressive i mean that that's the other thing is it's like have to kind of count lower fidelity data yep that kind like of has dlt stuff manually digital digitized calibrate and weight whatever various yeah. study results in, exactly. in light of those kind of qualifiers yeah everyone everyone always always falls back on the uh the the arm internally rotates at speeds up to nine thousand degrees per second. I mean, I in my thesis, I'm pretty sure I have papers that say that exact same. Yeah, thing. in my I, under my own name, I, I do too. <laughs> on, on your Google Scholar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure in the intro of my my thesis at UPS, I quoted both of those. You know, yeah. and I used it. I was like, yeah, the arm can internally rotate at speeds up to nine thousand degrees per second, and uh, I mean, we've definitely never seen seven thousand, and we've got some of the fastest throwers in the world coming through our lab. I don't At like five thousand or I something, right? I don't think we've seen six thousand. I want to say I've seen a couple fives. What do we currently have in the in the V six DB? Is I mean they're like 40. around the forty two to forty five yeah, yeah. for, so the, for the peak I guys. Thinking, yeah. I think. I think we had some five thousanders in some some earlier models. I don't know if we have any right now, but. Still, I mean, we've seen we've seen hundred mile an hour pitches, and they don't rotate at nine thousand degrees per second. Also, peak IR speeds—the way they happen—everyone always likes to give the example of the arm at ninety. You know, and like, yeah, the arm rotates like this. No maximal IR speed is happening when their arm is at ninety degrees. It is like it's here. You know, yeah. they're the elbows it's like right following ball release. Yeah, the elbow is almost fully extended. Like everyone likes to pair and. When I say everyone, I'm actually talking to a former version of myself when I talked about how, like, you know, look at look at how much layback they get and all this, and then he's going to get in this position, and then he's going to rotate at 9,000 degrees per second out of it. That's not true. The arm's going to deploy, like, in this, you know, almost like lasso fashion. It's like whipping out uh, in interrelease, and that's when that, that peak IR speed happens. Not, you know. One thing you guys mentioned, uh, energy flow, which we, we have some new metrics on energy flow that we didn't have recently. And we, I think we've taken some measures to kind of calculate like, you know, some more stuff going, uh, going forward there. Do you guys want to explain what that is and, and why we're interested in it? I know Wass <laughs> wants to explain what that is. I'm trying to throw up softballs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, um, base, so we usually uh, want to quantify the loads placed on the pitching arm, right? Obviously, on the shoulder and elbow. And traditionally that's been mainly Elbow valgus torque or varus torque, depending on how that's you're, a good topic right after defining things internal external whatever, and then it's uh, it's complement at the shoulder, which is shoulder internal or external rotation torque, and basically to calculate those we 
calculate the net joint moment on the shoulder and elbow, and then we take one part of that net joint moment that we think has anatomical relevance, right? So the UCL, it's on the inside of the elbow, it's gonna be most vulnerable to torques about that axis that causes valgus, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Stress. Oh, yeah, stress, sure. Um, uh, that causes valgus stress at the elbow, uh, but there's other um, components of that net joint torque that are not traditionally looked at, like they were in the early papers, right? But then everyone kind of just keys in on elbow valgus, and for good reason, because yeah. it has anatomical relevance to the UCL, and then yeah, it makes sense we do the same thing on the shoulder. Um, but the point being, there's, there are other joint loads uh, at both the shoulder and elbow that we're not looking at. And what energy flow does is it takes the entire uh, net joint moment or net joint force, um, you know, kind of takes it into the garage, sands it down, uh, puts a bow on it, brings it back out in one number, and that's kind of a amalgamation of your entire joint stress, mm. kind of. Um, and uh, kind of like what I was talking about with looking at looking beyond MIR and seeing big increases in, in shoulder joint stress, we can actually look at the energy going from the upper arm to the forearm during the pitching motion. And it, we hope, again, we're still in kind of the early stage of this, uh, give us a bit more complete picture of what your elbow is being exposed to or your shoulder uh, during the pitching motion. And so um, it's kind of new but not new because it was done in walking in the 80s like everything yeah. else in biomechanics. But in terms of applying it to the pitching motion, um, really just probably since 2018, at least in English. Again, there are papers in out of Japan before this because they beat us to everything yeah. in, in the baseball biomechanics world. But in terms of stateside, um, like uh, Jacob Howenstein, uh, Dr. Aguinaldo started putting out some papers. Uh, a couple other labs have started putting out some papers looking at these energy flow metrics. Um, and I hope that's kind of like a, a next little, yeah. you know, rabbit hole to go down. But uh, pretty excited doing some preliminary investigations, actually in the middle of doing a write-up right now, um, showing that uh, elbow energy transfer and elbow valgus can kind of be complementary and at least in a predictive sense where if you include them both in a model it gets you further than yeah. just one by itself yeah. and it's not like one dwarfs the other and the other one becomes a, a non-significant predictor like yeah. they, they can kind of help each other out and so I'm pretty optimistic that um, at least to some extent it's going to bring some added information yeah that that's that's kind of one of the things I was talking about too with like um New, newer ways to approach things. I think uh, it's actually kind of similar to um, a convo I had had with Dean at some point, and I know that that others have have talked about and now gotten more interested in. But like, uh, you know, hip shoulder separation just doesn't only happen in the Z, right? There's like there's other uh, orientations that it happens in. You have like anterior, posterior, medial, lateral stuff. So that that's kind of stuff I was talking about with. Um, getting away from, you know, historically people say like hip shoulder separation is really important, but there, there's other components and like looking at, you know, getting out of just like the XYZ coordinate system into, which is as you're kind of getting X at floating YZ. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
but as you as you're kind of getting at like that's one of the things with like uh various valgus and just looking at like one piece of it um so any analysis that i that looks into other components or, or tries to what would you say uh sand it down and get it in the amalgamation of all it. of them yeah, yeah. Put, a bow on it. put a bow on it yeah gotta paint a picture for the list exactly yeah you don't know? don't just get the z or or one component but uh get all of it together i, I think like those types of analyses are, are super exciting for sure what what uh what investigations are, are you most pumped to get into um yeah so i mean the big thing with kind of the the pipeline redo in addition to some of like the modeling changes um, we're also just exporting more metrics. Um, so we do have kind of the energy flow stuff um, that, that was added to there. Uh, but then we're also exporting like the joint position. So previously we just had the joint angles. Um, so just had the, the joint of like, or the angle of elbow flexion um, throughout the course of a throw. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we have the X, X, XYZ coordinates um, in space for the wrist, the elbow and the shoulder at each point. Um, so that gives us a little bit more stuff to work with, um, just because in some cases the the joint angles it can be a little bit tough to kind of put into uh, put into the signals what it is you're looking for kind of visually, mm-hmm. um, which I mean I, I think that that's part of why I think I really gravitated to like the biomech analysis was the the challenge and kind of uh, involved in translating the movement to the data and, yeah. and to kind of framing framing the question um, that you can kind of intuitively understand video, from the video into what it actually looks like in the data. So, um, I mean, examples, I, I think like the back foot would be tough to look at from just the joint angles, like say back heel connection, because um, you could look at the ankle, like dorsi plantar flexion, mm-hmm. but that's affected by if they're bending their knee or not. So knee like flexion. knee, knee I'm sorry for people, anyone listening to this episode just fucking Googling. If, if they've been as far, they're pulling out different tabs and just yeah. dorsiflexion. Yeah, yeah. Know, yeah, yeah. Um, basically, you could bend at the ankle, you could bend at the knee, you could bend at the hip. Like if, if you were to just like bend your leg, all of those would kind of mm-hmm. happen together, um, which ties into like the coordination kind of aspect of, of the full signal data, which is um, kind of like a, a taller analysis task. Um, but with the, with the positional data in there, we can now just straight up look at the position of the foot. So when does the foot come off the ground with, yeah. without having to kind of try and reverse engineer stuff from from just working with the joint angles. So yeah. um, I, I think there's a variety of stuff along those lines. Um, force plate data is also um, processed and more accessible. Um, we've been collecting it, but just haven't kind of built out all, all the pipelines to have it flowing into the DB. Um, until recently so a bunch of stuff to look at there in terms of like timing of ground reaction forces kind of coordination with with other movements um, as well as just understanding like what movements relate to putting force into the ground yeah um, Mm -hmm. and other stuff along those lines yeah for sure yeah another thing with the uh the joint center stuff that i think is pretty exciting long term is um since Hawkeye doesn't do uh, orientation, segment orientation. It just is like joint center data. There, There is a lot of potential for like, I, I think those kind of investigations or getting, I think this is going to happen with markerless too. Because like 
there's a lot of assumptions or ways that uh, segment orientation is, is estimated based on like models and whatnot. And I think that labs, companies, whoever's out there, like, I don't know who's gonna win that battle for which model's best or which way to like do the pose estimation and, and uh, interpretation of those, those orientations. Um, but one thing that they'll all have that's like accurate with markerless data is the joint center positions. You know, you may not be able to know, like you're probably just not going to be able to solve, you know, pronation, supination and like forearm carry angle, all that stuff with markerless data. I don't know how you would be able to do that, but you should get high fidelity joint center data from markerless solutions. And so if you can build out some robust analyses around, hey, you don't have joint angles and you don't have uh, the ability to like break down the components in that sense, but you do have joint center positions, velocity, acceleration, and space, you know, what kind of um, data can, can you get from that and understanding? And then how can you apply it to the, to the athlete? I think it's pretty interesting. There's a chance too that that might be easier to interpret for the athlete than uh you know standard joint angles like when you say shoulder horizontal abduction they're just like yeah what what does that Mm. mean right like maybe maybe there is potential for just um you know joint center based analyses that get away from traditional biomech talk might be might be easier to interpret and i think with markerless stuff it'll be pretty pretty important I got got a couple minutes here left. What, what what's your number one uh, recommendation of someone starting a biomechanics lab? You guys go first. <laughs> Based on all my experience starting biomechanics labs, and my mine's gonna be don't. Oh, no, I'm just <laughs> damn. I should have taken that. Mine was gonna be don't, unless you're willing to pay for a human that knows how to run things. Because a yeah. lot a lot of entities like to, they're more than willing to spend six figures on toys. And then mm-hmm. they want to yeah. try and get, you know, someone for not very much money to, yeah. to run the whole thing, you know, and buy themselves. And that's one of the things that I really like about here is that, yeah, we have the toys, but we also have a lot of people. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, it, it, it takes a village. And so don't be, um, I get that the equipment's kind of like just an upfront cost, but it, for the most part is kind of a one-time thing assuming nothing breaks too much yeah. but like and the the human cost is recurring because you got to keep paying them but like there's really minimal point in buying all that stuff if you're not willing to also pony up for you know qualified people who who can understand it yeah i think one quick thing to add on to that um which has happened to us multiple times in like like meetings potential contract purchases all this stuff like people like teams facilities whomever out there want to build their own biomic lab and, and get it running and, and stuff which is great but it's going to take a while for them to to yeah settle on a model get enough data to actually get any sort of insight out of it yeah and like start up like you know like build yeah. a, a pipeline or something to, to yeah. apply it you gotta, I, I, have a, you gotta have a plan for like the end state yeah. of like what's it actually going to do yeah. you just are you just collecting data um I like I like Wass's answer a lot, which would I'll, I'll go with mine being the same thing. My uh, the first lecture I ever had in grad school in our like first uh, biomed class, professor said just like opened it up with um, first slide, first line, which is biomechanics is ninety percent troubleshooting. So you you know we're going to talk a lot about 
all the nitty gritty like math and stuff that goes into how we actually get biomechanical data and it's important for you to know. But at the end of the day, the most important thing you're gonna get from like this lab experience here is to know what to do when stuff breaks and what isn't working. So honestly, I learned a lot about like really in-depth biomechanics stuff, but the, the, the stuff I'm most grateful for in terms of learning was just like problem solving when things break. Because uh, biomechanics just like, it is not buy biomechanics lab, press record, have biomechanics data. Like it's, st stuff is breaking all the time. You got to figure out and, you know, understand how to solve things, make decisions around those problems, all that. What, what you got, Besky? Besky. What is a biomechanics lab? Um, that's a good, I mean, that, that's a good answer no, I, right there. I, yeah, I, I feel that expresses my knowledge on uh, what it takes to start one. I mean, thankfully, we have a team that, that handles the lab. So in terms of like that stuff, there's a whole bunch of it that, I mean, with, with working on some of the processing stuff, I've gained more of an appreciation for, but just like, shoot, like there's a lot that goes from taking or capturing dots yeah. to yeah. then having numbers for someone. Yeah. From that's that's just getting that's just getting data. That's not yeah. even the the other piece which is probably bigger, which is actually doing something yeah. with it. You know, like how are you gonna actually use this? What what's your plan for getting it in athletes' hands and, and making the changes you want, that kind of stuff. Which I mean is is a is a question that pops up in a bunch of parallel baseball. All, yeah. all baseball pitch design technology things is, yeah bad yeah. speed looking at blast data cavus all that 100 pulse workload 100 pulse 100 percent pulse ratios pulse ratios we're, we're out of time oh, we're out of time, we're out of time. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> we can't even get into ratios um, it's five o'clock yeah uh, do we gotta go oh, no, what do you got, we we got, got i was, I was just gonna part add two. i feel like that that system part of it is just super helpful with like because the the data collection efforts that that actually like continue to to get poured into and like used are the ones where there is an output yeah where, where there are decisions that are made based off of it that's when the people keep coming back indefinitely yeah. to collect more data and to uh just continue to use it to to build out pipelines to pour that's resources into it. it if it kind of is going into a black box it can be super tough so like that's the other thing is like try and find the quickest turnaround to it doesn't have to be the greatest thing in the world, but to have some sort of output and like factor into decision making or, or whatever um, yeah. from your system. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. So my any question is was gonna be which one is uh, which one of uh, Wasa's tattoos is your guys' favorite? Uh, we'll save that for the next uh, <laughs> the, ne the, the next for time the we have this, the next time we have this group on because uh, we got to run to all hands. Post all hands. OC is gonna be pissed. Uh, Drive on R and D podcast episode seventy two three three. Mm -hmm. he, said, he said seventy three at the start, yeah. so you might two, have two to Jake's. record another one. Two Are you sure two is Jake's? No, but but but, but seventy was Nick Martinez. Seventy two was Jake's, or seventy one was Jake's. This is seventy two. I think this is seventy two. How do we do it? Podcast episode 74. <laughs> Podcast episode 72. Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We'll do it again. We'll do it again soon. Peace. Peace.